so many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, Let's get into it. Picture this, people. You're delivering a high-stakes demo or presentation. The room is filled with people who have the ability to either make or break the deal. And within minutes of your presentation, you're slapped with an objection from the C-suite. And hey, it catches you off guard. Fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the three options that are in front of you, but maybe, just maybe, there's a better solution. And I'm talking about handling that specific objection through the art of storytelling. I mean, is it better to handle an objection before it even arises? Hell yes, you and I can agree on that, but hey, life isn't perfect and sales isn't either. And our guest on today's show is Ben Purton, who I know can talk to exactly this. He's the captain of a professional chess team over in the UK. He's a husband and father to two, and he's a director of international enablement over at Ring Central. And today, I've stolen his time. Okay, I've stolen it red handed so he can give us his perspective on how to handle objections through the art of story. You know, I'm all about this, Ben. So, listen, my friend, welcome to the show. What's good? Yeah, happy to be here, Ravi. Big fan of the show. And uh, yeah, hopefully I can add some insight into how to handle objections with some experiences of my own. I know you can. I know you can because I get the feeling that you've got a ton of perspective and also a lot of personality. And I say this because if you go to LinkedIn, ladies and gents, and you read Ben's about section, he's kept it super personal and you get a feel for his energy straight away. And it leads me to the question, Ben, What's one part of your story that people may not know, which will give us more context on who you are today? I think one of the, because I make it quite obvious that I love chess on my yeah. profile and in, in podcasts. And that's something I do talk about more in the last year, because I've seen it a lot, is probably that I have autism. And that's quite rare in sales, I would say. It's not unheard of now, which is great. It used hmm. to be that you would be put into certain roles quite by society. But now we've got it where there are big companies out there, some of the biggest companies in the world that actually proactively are hiring for neurodiverse people. So that's really exciting. So I guess that's a little bit of a section that I do talk about more in the last year, but for about 30 odd years, I didn't talk about that much. That's incredible, man. And you know, going back to what you just said about not speaking about it that much over the past 30 years, 
Talk to that for a second. Is it because of any stigma? Is it because you felt it wasn't relevant? Why didn't you talk to that over the past few decades? I got into sales because of it, really, which sounds oh. <laughs> it sounds like completely because when I was going for all these jobs when I was like 16, 17, I was living on my own, weirdly, and I had to get a job whilst I was at college or doing A-levels. And I wanted a retail job that worked really well after school, sort of do yeah. three or four days a week and weekends and, and enough money to pay the council tax. Okay. But not many of the retail companies wanted me because I would be looking at the floor a lot. I'd be quite quirky, a little bit more, perhaps more than I am now. I've done some work on talking like in this kind of forum as well so i ended up as a door-to-door salesperson so uh, and that really was a baptism of fire because it was (laughs) i was uh really struggling with with doing that i wasn't very good but i do have some uh I, i did learn quite a lot from that that's really interesting i didn't know that about your story that's fascinating man and as you were talking i'm thinking What's one superpower that autism has given Ben, which enabled him to be prolific in sales? I think one of the best, well, everyone who's neurodiverse has a different sort of, you know, superpower. They have uh, because of the, but I guess mine is I like to read (laughs) and I like to, I can memorize quite a lot of stuff (laughs) and I think that's what I've tried to do over the years. I mean, I read, I don't actually read as much as my wife, but I do read quite a lot. And I, I try to read as many of the books on storytelling or whether it, uh, positioning, human behavioral science, if it's well, from Simon Sinek to the more academic ones, everything on it. And I kind of like a chameleon have adapted and grown because I think one of the best skills you can have in sales or in, in any job is know that you still have loads to learn. And I think that's something that you realize, oh, I want to learn as much as possible, even now when I'm quite high up in my sort of region of sort of enablement. I think that's my superpower is being able to sort of bring all this data from all these studies, bring all these books and make it digestible for my sales staff. I think that is my superpower, really. I love that. I love that. And thank you for educating me on that because I didn't know parts of, parts of one, your story, but parts of... Well, I suppose how different individuals who are neurodiverse may have different superpowers. So, for example, yours is reading and absorbing information. And I suppose that's incredible for sales, right? Which lends itself beautifully to the story that we're going to get to, you know, in a a minute. I don't want to spoil it just yet because I know that superpower helps you massively. But talk to Chess for a second, Ben, because... I'm wondering if there were any, or if there are, because I know you still play the sport, are there any similarities between chess and sales that you see directly? I think the biggest one, and I, I should really preach this, I should do what I preach when it comes to chess more, I do it a lot with sales, is I, my tip, I used to have a coach and I loved my coach, his name was uh, Dino, and uh, he was from originally from sort of Bosnia, Herzegovina. And he currently teaches actually at Eton and a few other schools now. But when I first, when he first came over, he was one of my only, he, he, I was one of his only pupils. And he told me like, the, and this is a tip that I, he's like, you can look over a hundred wins, but you're likely to learn more from one serious look at a loss. Yeah. And ah. that was his big advice. And actually, to be fair, that is the advice most good chess coaches will give. Like, look at where you went wrong, where you could have improved. You feel better when you look at a win. 
you honestly you go oh look at this how great am i i'm brilliant and you feel good but you don't actually learn too much right whereas if you look and in sales if you look at a loss similar to chess and you go, I could have done this better. I could have moved it. I could have, you know, bought in executive alignment, could have could have bought in this person earlier, should have probably engaged with that guy or girl. And 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 that's really, really a big thing for chess and also for sales. So I think it's not one that usually I would lead with, but study your losses. That's my big tip, because that's where all the learning is. Huge, huge. I'm so big on that as well, Ben, especially when it comes to, for example, listening to gong calls, taking a look at the stories that you shared, how you shared them, how you embedded them, all that good stuff. You learn, as you said, from those unfortunate moments or those mistakes, not from, hey, I'm the man. Look at me. Look at me. Right. So I love that. I love that. Now, on that topic of objection handling, I think there's two camps. Well, actually, I really think there's one, but I think there used to be two. But nowadays, people talk about handling objectives, uh, objections rather, proactively versus reactively. And I think a lot of people agree on the proactive piece, right? Handling them before they arise. Talk to that for a second. What's your take on that? What's your perspective? I mean, they don't go away if you don't ask about them. They actually hide under the rock and that, that's more dangerous. That, like, they allowed, they're almost allowing them to ferment and potentially get worse when a lot of the time objections are solvable or yeah achievable to solve and that's that's a buying signal i remember when i was first sort of in my first graduate sales role and my first year i was in retail (laughs) and if someone comes up with a strong objection if you overcame it it was a massive thing you almost it was a buying signal if they don't want to know they walk away silence is the worst thing in sales an objection is not the worst thing. objection is a good thing and you should bring it out early because if, it, if you leave it to ferment it'll hit you when they're about to sign or hopefully about to sign and it could it can derail your deal a lot of the times i mean i remember when i was at my previous company we had a our, probably our best salesperson the company we were just about to sign one of his biggest deals and they got bought out by another company and that was known for quite a while it didn't really ask if there's going to be any issues with it and there was it was a deal breaker we, we they they went with whomever whomever the person who bought them had at the time and that so realistically my tip is always bring them out as if you can bring them out early but sometimes they hide and they're, they're, no matter how good you are at qualification and no matter how great your relationship sometimes they just come up like a whack-a-mole towards the end of a cycle i guess that's quite a good segue for us because i i've in my story there's a little bit of proactive but also a bit of reactive as well yeah and for context for the audience listening to this right now ben and i connected probably about a month ago now and we were figuring out the right topic for him to speak to and he told me this story that he's about to share and genuinely i was hooked for about eight minutes straight and i was fascinated at the outcome and ben's approach to handling the objection partly proactively and then partly on the spot in a high stake scenario high pressure and he did it with elegance. And I really would love for you to uncover that first today. Yeah, so my specialism, I would argue maybe I'm better at this than, than, than sales enablement or revenue enablement, is ROI models. So bringing in the value and the data into a deal cycle. It can be anything you're selling. I'm re- I love the maths of it and everything. So I was down in Canary Wharf and I was working with a big bank and it's really rare for the ROI person to be brought in to what you call the final meeting, which is where you're discussing the contract. 
you're usually down selected to maximum really free. In this case, it was us versus another provider. I wasn't working for my current company. I was working for actually a big rival to my current company now at the time. And I went into the boardroom and it was a bit like The Apprentice. There's sort of a row of people and there's a lot of people (laughs) for this large bank. And there's a row of us. I've got my salesperson, I've got the technical person, an SE and myself. And I'm sat there and I'm like, I've been told like, you'll sit in the corner, nothing's going to come up about your ROI report. And I'd spent quite a few weeks down in their office building this report. So I thought, okay, I'll be, I'll be fine. I I was mid twenties, sort of late to mid twenties anyway. And this was my biggest meeting of my life, really. I'm in front of the CIO, a pretty new CIO at the time, about 10 years ago of this bank. And she's in there and I'm a bit intimidated. I'm like, wow, this is, this is, I've kind of made it. I'm pretty happy with myself at the moment. And then they sit down and before they do hardly any talking, they get a few niceties out of the way. She picks up my report and I'm like, okay, good, good, good adrenaline at the moment. And the next thing I know is who wrote this report? And I was like, well, I did. What a load of rubbish. And immediately I feel like I've been kicked in the stomach. They were sweating from places I didn't know I existed. I kind of took about five, probably about five seconds, but it felt it felt like 50. I sort of went, okay, um, tell me how come you think that? That's just the only question, that good qualification question I could ask at the time, like praying for a little bit of information. Well, I've seen a line in this report, she said, that says that we spend $90,000 a week on the elevator. If you just made stuff up to, to make a point here? And I said, uh, well, well, no, I've been in your office for three weeks. And I, if you let me, give me two minutes, I'll explain it to you. And she goes, you've got one, like, which is a real corporate thing to say. Like, I've got, I've got less than two minutes. I go, so, okay, so in one minute, your average salary is $57 because everything's converted into dollars for large business deals, it seems. And for this, uh, it was in dollars. And that works cute for it's about $1 a minute. Of, of your time. And I've taken out the standard deviations. So I've taken out the person who gets the eight figure bonus. And I've taken out the person who's on a little bit more than minimum wage. And I've tried to sort of c- come up with that average. That's fair, I think. And you've got about 10,000 employees. So if I was to sort of think about the elevator, $90,000 is about nine minutes a week taking the elevator. In fact, it's actually high. I've downplayed every number in this report. And then I asked the question, I said, is it fair to say that you, you spend in a week about 10 minutes going up to these free massive meeting rooms in your building? And she goes, well, at least that. I spend sometimes three minutes queuing. And I'm like, this is, that's great. I'm, I'm like, sitting there, yes, I've got one. And then I feel like I've won. So you, I've got kicked in the stomach. Now I'm like, yay, I've won. And then suddenly she has an aha moment which again, I feel like I've been kicked in the stomach again. She goes, well, we're not not going to take the elevator, are we, Ben? And I was like, that's true. But in your report, I've said, if you could take, because you can have the little meetings at your desk now, because you're bringing in this new video web conferencing tool where you haven't, they haven't really got a solution like that for everyone yet. If you take 10% less meetings in those, those sort of small meetings that could be done at your desk, it's 10%, again, a lowball figure, that's about $10,000 a week. And that 
is about half a million a year. <laughs> Just 10% of those elevator trips are reduced down. And the big, big thing with this is, okay, half a million a year, it's a three-year contract at the time. That's not enough for them. Okay, sold. I've got elevators less. Where do I sign? The big thing that I said is that's one in 270 variables in the ROI report. And it's one of the smaller ones, believe it or not. (laughs) Stuff like increased productivity of workforce and everything like that. She didn't actually say anything. She just sort of, sort of like, hmm. And then looked down and moved on. And that feeling was the probably the best feeling of my entire career. <laughs> because I felt I've got my adrenaline went from highest it's ever been. My heart rate's probably, if I had one of the watches, it would have been buzzing. Down to probably something like, they <laughs> think I've fallen asleep. But I think the best thing wasn't this, wasn't overcoming it and the feel, my feeling. And it wasn't that she was happy, even though it was the most senior stakeholder I'd ever talked to at the time. It was the look from my salesperson next to me, like the kind of the kind of sort of a wink to say, you've nailed it. Now, the big theme for this, the big thing I, when I came out, all the adrenaline, I sort of almost wanted to cry because uh, all the adrenaline had sort of come down. I didn't know where I was type thing. When I was on the train on the way home, I thought about that scenario. And I've told this story in onboarding at my current place <laughs> for many years now. I thought, why did that go so well? Uh, instead of looking at your defeats like we talked about in chess a minute ago, why did that, how was I allowed to overcome that objection? And not only that, she had a rebuttal objection as well. And there's two really main reasons. One, I'd done my research and qualification really well. So I'd know my, I knew my stuff. I'd spent weeks down there I'd done reports with their teams. I had samples. I built something that usually costs somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000 to prepare. It's quite a popular thing, an extensive value report if you're buying a big solution. And I'd done it for free as part of the deal cycle, but I'd spent three weeks down there. But the big thing for me is I had really knew my numbers. <laughs> and I didn't know that this was going to happen. But at the end of the day, it was a bank. They know their numbers. And if you can speak back to them in numbers when you're quantifying value, that is really powerful. And that's the day I learned that to the nth degree, because we signed the deal, one of the biggest deals in history for the partner and for us, and they renewed three years later. It was really successful. But a lot of people gave me a lot of kudos. But the biggest thing for me was prepare well, know your value data and you can be successful in in sort of most scenarios like that and, and handle most objections. Cut, pause, or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead and story selling is alive because if you really want to build trust, stand out, and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, 
That's what I'm all about. So if you're not in your head right now, then head on down to www.therabbyrajani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. If there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. Love that story. Love, love, love that story. There was two things that came up for me as you were talking. The first one, you said, I didn't just face an objection. I faced a rebuttal objection. Do you mind explaining the difference in your eyes between the two for those listening? Well, I'd overcame the objection. I'd proven the maths. But a lot of times what happens is people think on their feet and go, well, actually, so I'll give you one from when I was in retail. I worked for a company, Rosetta Stone Language Discs. Mm. Mm -hmm. And people come up and go, this isn't the best way to learn a language. And I would go, I totally agree. So I would usually disagree with their objection. And they go, oh, well, they weren't expecting it. But they would, say, they would say their objection anyway. The best way to learn a language is to go to the country. So go to Spain if you want to learn Spanish. And I said, yeah, that's why I totally why I agreed with you. But and so that was the objection. And I kind of handled it by agreeing. But then they would say, well, why do people buy this then? So I don't understand why a secondary objection because they've kind of had their one handle. They, they still can't believe it. They still want to object. And I would say, well, most people can't afford or can't logistically go out to Spain for an entire year or two years to learn a language unless it's part of a degree. If you want to learn Spain because you go on holiday there or you want to buy a second home there or for whatever reason, this is the next best thing to that. And so they often what happens is when you have an objection, you want a lot of times objections can be negotiation strategies, firstly. But if even if they have one, they have a secondary one because they want to get their point across. They truly believe their point. But sometimes I mean, it was right for the lady at the large bank to object to that. If you saw something you don't agree with, object to it. On the high level, it didn't make sense. It's a huge figure, $90,000 a week, down to 10000 in savings. It's a huge figure. It's like blows out. But they often will then try to object again. But they haven't done as much thought on that objection usually. So it's usually like, okay, I agree with you but I'm still not happy. So they will come up with maybe an objection. And that's, again, it's another buying signal because they're slightly easier most of the time to bat away than the first one, which is the hard one usually. How much of it do you think is ego when somebody hits you with a secondary objection? Meaning, damn it, Ben has just handled my objection publicly and I've been so ferocious with my initial objection. I'm just going to say something else to save face because I don't want to look or be perceived a certain way in front of my peers. Do you think there's an element of that? I don't know, really. Some, with some buyers, yes, of course, I reckon. But with, with some, it can be like, let's test to see if this, this company or this person representing this company is legit. Let's test to see if they really like it. Because I'm, I'm hoping from the, the mm that she gave like, and the kind of look of approval, she was impressed by the knowledge of the stats and the figures and the research done that I had not just yeah. chucked. Because I'm guessing you do, if you're, if you're a CIO, you might get quite a few reports chucked across your desk that are just sort of data dumps and that people really don't like live and breathe what they've presented. I hope I came across to her as passionately as I used. Whenever I tell this story, I get emotional. And because I kind of overcame a hurdle. So maybe there was a bit of peacocking. She was quite new, but I don't think so in that regard. I think realistically, she was 
setting a challenge for me to overcome. And when I overcame it, she was impressed, I hope. Love it, man. I love it. And for those listening to this right now who have picked up on something really subtle but powerful that Ben said, he said, sometimes objections are used as a negotiation strategy. And you see this all the time where somebody wants to move forward with you, but they hit you with certain objections to devalue the price, right? And I mean, that's another thing we can get into. But, 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 before I lose my train of thought, before I lose my train of thought, you said something at the end of your story around the idea that I learned that day that knowing your numbers to the nth degree is important. Now in storytelling, a lot of people talk about being emotive, being able to spark emotion more so than, well, actually, let let me put it like this. A lot of people talk about people buying on emotion and justifying their solution through logic. So with you, you were speaking to somebody who was clearly very, very numbers driven. But if you were speaking to somebody who had a completely different profile, who maybe was a bit more big picture, would you shift the way you handled that objection when you are communicating with that style of individual? And if so, how would you do it? I think yes and no. I would maybe tone down the numbers a bit, but I would st- the numbers were quite simple. I almost explained them in a, I was tiptoeing along the patronizing way of I'm talking to a banker, uh, you know, $1 <laughs> a minute. But I was kind of showing my thought process. And I'd like to think, if sometimes if you think about maths, one of my favorite quotes is from the film Mean Girls. Whenever I say that, people are like, what? <laughs> but it's like, maths is beautiful. And why is it? It's the same in every language. And in a weird way, it's the same in for, for most people when it's at that base level, that real base arithmetic. And I love to bring, I think stories are massively powerful, but if they have a bit, it's almost like a bit of spice from some stats, it chucked in. That's the real sort of mix. That's the, the seasoning that can be really powerful in 2023, especially because 2023, everyone is looking at numbers. You hear it on shareholder because we're looking at the numbers. We're looking at the margins. That's, that's the topic. That's the the big thing that this this year, you know, we might not officially be in a recession, but the world feels like it is, and uh, cost of living crisis, everything. Numbers into stories can be good. I do agree though with the first point you made that it depends on the buyer. Like if I'm if I'm talking to someone and they are a user buyer, so someone who's going to use the tool, I talk more about you know the outcome of what's going to happen and how it's going to revolutionize their team. More so than say, you would say this, this would say this. I, I wouldn't dump them with numbers. I might sprinkle one or two in. You could save a bit, save an hour a day, for example, as an extreme. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't over pepper it with numbers as much as I maybe would if I'm in front of the sea level of a bank. How important do you think it is in today's climate then to not just explain the ROI using numbers, but the cost of inaction using numbers? And how would you frame the cost of inaction? Well. Whenever you're doing value assessments, which is the popular term for ROI and TCO, total cost of ownership, return on investment, it's important to break those two down. Total cost of ownership is the cost, the cost of doing nothing, the cost you can potentially save. That's the costs. You have them in TCO models. When you look at ROI models, I find it fascinating because a lot of people focus on the TCO. It's the sweet, Hmm. you know, you can save this with this or you're losing this amount of revenue. Yeah. And so that kind of starts to creep into the ROI a little bit, but that still falls in a lot of the base TCO models. When you think about a business, though, most businesses, like, for example, that big bank, 
saving that time meant that they save time, which is great, and it has a cost associated to it. But they can repurpose that time for hopefully profitable activity. So you assume most companies are, or most people who work for a company, if they are paying me a dollar a minute, like the average there, and they, I assume that I'm producing at least a dollar a minute, or I'm not, you know, I'm not a good utility of my time. And in that regard, that's really powerful as well. So whenever I'm thinking about ROIs, TCOs, people say cost of sale, we can save this. But what does saving this because a lot of time a lot of savings with technology with tools especially ai and stuff it's not directly sort of saving money per se it's actually saving time and time is money the famous adage and what can i repurpose that time with what's the true return on investment i use an example that i love using and a quick story my partner she used to work for a large pharmaceutical company and she works in hr And she would look after all the warehouse ops. And these warehouses, they weren't one of the most famous pharmaceuticals, but they were pretty famous for providing the stuff that goes into the vials for the vaccines. And she worked during the pandemic at this, a pretty high pressure, a lot of the warehouse staff sick. So you're having to make a lot of phone calls. And this this is my area. So I used to look at, we worked from home in the same room at the time. And she would copy and paste these numbers across from what she was using Microsoft Teams, which is something we, my company work with. And she was using Workday, which a lot of people use for human resource. And she was copy and pasting numbers, copy and pasting numbers, didn't have an integration or anything nice like that. I felt a bit bad because I've got all the stuff on my computer across the table. But I would see a copy and paste. And at the end of the day, she was almost like shattered from doing all this copy and pasting. Now, if I was to build a total cost of ownership type of model, I could say, well, Aga, my, my wife, is spending X amount of minutes a day, and that's costing this. And she could save X amount of minutes a day. But there's two things. What could she do with that time to be more productive? And there's almost a third thing, really, on top of that, is like the frustration of doing that. The stuff that's quite hard to quantify and quite hard to ROI, because I don't know if they want to be <laughs> sure you can save the time, repurpose the time. And that time's not only going to probably be more productive, but also less frustrating. Because a lot of times what you see in an organization is the lady at the bank said, sometimes I spend three or four minutes just waiting. Frustration, that's emotional frustration. Hard to quantify that, but it's important. It impacts churn, it impacts happiness at work. And so there's almost like TCO, ROI, other, uh, which includes happiness, frustrations, emotions. I love so much about what you said, especially the piece you just mentioned about adding emotive language to describe their emotional state, because there's a difference between Ben was unhappy versus Ben was experiencing crippling anxiety before delivering his numbers at the board meeting, right? So different. And the next thing you mentioned, which is, you know, I hope everybody's really going to rewind and replay this segment because as you said, it's not just focusing on the cost of inaction or how much one can save in time, but then it's, okay, so what? What can you do through repurposing it both from a tangible place and intangible place? And I love that. I think that's so, so powerful. So thank you for, for highlighting that, man. And I suppose final question for you or penultimate question for you rather is, When it comes to using data with storytelling, do you have any tips for the audience here, aside from anything that you shared today, on how to 
portray the numbers in a way that it feels like a journey to that customer. Yeah, peppering in is good. You'd have noticed, I mean, I could have put some numbers in the story about my wife. <laughs> you know, she's spending 30 minutes a day and that costs this amount. Yeah. I didn't even bother with that. I think peppering it in, because if you, if, you, if you chuck it in too much, it's like over-seasoning a pasta, it's, like, it's not going to taste good. I mean, my big thing is also think about the emotion behind the numbers as well. You can be too number-orientated. Remember, when you're telling a story, you're telling a story to a person. And there's two, when you're ever talking to businesses, there's two buyer sort of personalities. There's the business buyer, I represent this company, I want to represent. And then there's the person who might want to get promoted, might be worried about their job. I use a story in this because one of the, I work in an area like, which is called CCAS, which is, I won't bore you, but it's contact centers a lot of the time. And sometimes we might do an ROI model. And the biggest cost of a contact center is people. Now, if you framed it like, okay, well, we're going to do this, or we're going to replace, and this will help you in many ways. You'll be able to reduce costs, and this is how you'll reduce costs, and this will help you here. And you tell a sort of loose story that's not got emotion in and not understood the human being, you might shoot yourself in the foot. I'll give you an example. Did an ROI model once, and they said, I've got seen your ROI model. There's one third of our workforce are going to be reduced over the next two years. I can't fire some. I, I, one of them was my best man at the wedding. I can't do that. But it hasn't been framed and told properly in the story with the data. You could say, instead of saying, I'm going to reduce your headcount, it will allow you to organically churn your staff. So about your, you said, you told us that the average amount of staff that leave the contact center is about 20 to 30%, which is slightly high, but let's say it's 15%. You're still going to get over two years. You don't have to get rid of anyone. They'll naturally leave, even if we get that number down to where we want it to be, because contact center roles are quite nomadic. Yeah. So you don't have to fire your best man. <laughs> and if you had qualified out that concern before, you can tell a story of where you can have the best of both worlds. You don't have to upset the human side and you can achieve the business side as well. And that's my big tip is to think firstly, to think about not over salting the pasta when it comes to data. Think about the two things. There's the business side where numbers are really, really powerful. But remember to not miss out the qualification on the human side in the story, because that's the main person you're selling to or people you're selling to, and they have different goals to the business. Love it. I love it, man. So much juice in this episode. So, so good. Dude, this is truly going to be one of those episodes for people that I think they're going to listen to over and over again, especially before their next demo or presentation, because I think it's going to help them a lot. So thank you for sharing your insights, man. And final question for you, brother, is the show is called The Influential Communicator. So I'd love to know, is there somebody that you look up to today as, ah, this person really communicates with influence? Well, <laughs> if I didn't say this person, my wife and my boss would go, how did you not say this person? Because <laughs> really? I mean, I must admit, I am a fanboy of Simon Sinek. I mean, I love Adam Grant and Simon Sinek, but Simon Sinek uh, is, is sort of my, I'm going to see him in a, down in London in a few months time. And that's the ticket I queued up the most for, you know, <laughs> like I was like, I'm here, I'm there two hours before the, the link opens. The reason I love him is because the most is because he's not the most extrovert presenter. He's not a Tony Robbins type storyteller. 
he tells it with that he focuses more on that human side of instead of business what my favorite story i think ever i've seen is when he tells the story of noah and i don't know if you know it but if you if you if anyone's listening that to me is was my favorite story it taught me a lot about storytelling and it also taught me a lot about how to be a leader as well in my in my role and so i would say uh simon who's your (laughs) one ravi who's yours I love Cynic. I really do love the way Cynic presents a message. He's fantastic. He's one of those individuals that whatever he puts out, people are going to buy into. He's a fantastic communicator. Honestly, there's so many people. I think the one that's coming up for me right now. Hmm. You know, you mentioned an interesting point actually about Tony Robbins. He's very, very energetic. And I think people often think of charisma as somebody like that. But I actually would say Simon Sinek is highly, highly charismatic because he's an impeccable listener. He's very intuitive. He makes people feel seen, heard, and understood. So actually, you know what? I might have to hit you with Sinek. I might have to, I might have to agree with you there. And maybe because I can't think of one on the, another one on the spot, but you know, Sinek, I'll give you an example. I listened to him on Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett. Did you listen to that episode? Yeah, and the motion is incredible. <laughs> oh, dude, when he was talking about feeling lonely and misunderstood in that story, it hit me so hard because he's so vulnerable, yet he gives other people the permission to do the same. Yet he can, he's just, he's such an articulate thinker, as well as he appeals to the masses. That's so hard to do. He can appeal to the corporate audience as well as a, 18 year old who's on the come up. I, I just think he's uh, he's a great dude. Not that I know him, but he's a great dude from what I imagine. Yeah, I totally agree. So listen, buddy, where can people go to learn more about you, Ring Central, and what you're up to? Ring Central, we've got ringcentral.com and ringcentral.co.uk. Myself, yep. always check me on LinkedIn. I think I live on LinkedIn. That's my main uh, social presence in that regard. My daughter will tell me off. She tells me I need to get more into the TikTok game, but it's LinkedIn still for me. all right fair enough fair enough so no dancing on tiktok anytime soon but ladies and gents that is ben perton here's what i'd like you to do okay if you enjoyed today's episode here's what i need you to do i want you to take a snapshot of where you're listening to this right now spotify apple google wherever and i want you to create a post on linkedin tag myself and ben and let us know what is the one most powerful thing that you took away from today's episode. Let us know. Ben and I will respond, we promise. And I'll see you next week, same time, same place for another episode. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Because I tell you what, my friend, my big mission is to help B2B sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So hey, the more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right. I'll see you on the other side.